Hello there, this is Future Forecast and I'm your host, Daniel Trainer. Today we're going to talk about some of the new technology happening right now in consumer electronics, transportation, energy and possible future innovations. Broadcasting every weekday on KUIK 1360 AM as well as weekly on X-Ray 91.1 FM. If you want to listen to episodes in your own time, be sure to check out the playback on SoundCloud by searching Future Forecast with Daniel Trainer. But without further ado, let's buckle up and find out what's this week's Future Forecast. So there's a new update from Apple. They've just came out with their new MacBook Pro. And you know, this released really quickly, uh, but it's a good indication that Apple's genuinely on the road to making their machines like they used to about a decade ago, which is form and most importantly, function as well. So you probably noticed uh, personal devices, they kind of become almost like a fashion accessory. You know, you get uh, an iPhone or you get an Apple Watch and it's kind of like a status symbol for people. You know, they see you in the street, you've got the latest iPhone, they know you've spent just around $1,000 on it. Now, there's nothing wrong with this trend. However, you know, the trend started to spread over into laptops and even desktops, and particularly when it came to Apple's Mac lineup. Now, if you take your mind back a couple of years ago, you'll remember, you know, there was that Mac Pro, you know, they had the big tower, which they have now, which we'll go into a little bit, but uh, they went from a big tower to a little thing that almost looked like a little trash can, and that's what it was nicknamed, the Mac Pro trash can. And it was such a disappointment. You know, I remember it was coming from a massively upgradable desktop tower to this limited upgradability compact workstation. And I'll never forget this. I remember watching, and I used to watch these keynotes live, and I saw Steve Wozniak in the audience, and you could see that he was shaking his head at the unveil. He knew what was up. And, you know, it was at that moment that Apple really set the trend for making computers more like a fashion statement than a proper workstation. Well, as I've talked about before in Future Forecast, uh, you know, there's going to be this big move over to cloud hybrid computers. And as I've said before, it'll probably start with, you know, something small like hard drives. And then it's going to expand over to other components. I mean, take Apple's Fusion Drive. Uh, it was kind of a good way for people that wanted on a budget, you could get very fast read and write speeds but it was a hybrid between a mechanical hard drive and a flash hard drive. And this whole thing with the cloud computers is gonna be very similar. You're gonna have quite a small local storage for kind of quick access, and then you're gonna have the cloud as the big mechanical hard drive, if you wanna think of it like that. But this release um, that we're gonna talk about, the new MacBook Pro, it's quite different. Uh, Apple's setting a good bar for machines at this rate. So let's have a little look at this MacBook Pro, right? So first of all, it is a brand new model and it's completely replacing the 15 inch MacBook Pro in Apple's lineup. So it's not an additional model. It's not this new, oh, this is the 16 inch top of the range. It is totally replacing the 15 inch. Now, importantly, the team uh, working on this new MacBook started with no design constraints. And this is quite rare. They had no restraints on weight, noise, size, or battery. So I'm happy to report this is not a thinner machine. Uh, it's not a smaller machine and it's not a quieter machine. However, 
it's currently a lot better than the MacBook Pro uh, that was currently available in pretty much every way possible. But let's talk a little bit about the specs because that's where this thing really shines. So it's got an AMD Radeon Pro 5500M with eight gigabytes of GDDR6 memory. Yes, that's right. GDDR6 speeds, which is insane. And now the MacBook Pro can also get up to eight terabytes of solid state storage. So it's still fast. And according to Apple, it's gonna be the most on any notebook ever in the past. And to top it off, you can get 64 gigs of DDR4 RAM. So this thing's a real powerhouse. And seeing as they've probably fixed a lot of the thermal properties, it's not really gonna have an issue with that. So anyway, this new MacBook Pro, it has a larger 16 inch screen, uh, which is this retina display. So the resolution, as with all of Apple's things, it's kind of an odd resolution. It's 3072 by 1920. So it's 226 pixels per inch. Why do I say the pixels per inch? Well, it's a bit like your iPhone probably has a higher density of pixels per inch. And you kind of look at the screen, and you think, hey, this looks a lot better than my laptop up close. So 226 is very dense and it's quite comparable. So you shouldn't notice any difference between the two. Uh, also the bezels on the screen are way narrower. So it makes the screen when you've got open feel a lot larger than it actually is uh, just sitting in front of you. So this contributes to the fact that the overall size of the new MacBook Pro is actually only just 2% larger in width and height with a 0.7 millimeter increase in thickness. That's something you don't hear too often from Apple, making their products thicker. Uh, also, we're not finished yet. Uh, it's got a bigger battery. It's got a full 100 watt hours, which is the most that's allowed under the FAA limits. Because uh, when you go in an airplane, you can only have a certain size battery. So that's why, uh, but Apple says that this extra little uh, battery is gonna give you an extra hour of normal use. So that's really quite amazing over the 15 inch. Now in other areas uh, where the 16 inch has made huge improvements is the speaker and microphone arrays. And let me tell you, when you hear the quality of the speakers, it's amazing. So there's about six speakers and they're arranged uh, so that the subwoofers, yes, that's right, it's got subwoofers, are positioned in pairs, uh, antipodal to one another, back to back. So, and also it has a three array mic, which is for sound recording. And it claims to be a high enough signal to noise ratio that it can rival standalone microphones. And apparently, this is funny, apparently it competes with the Blue Yeti mic on quality, which funnily enough is what I'm using right now. So this route looks really, really good. And I, I, I mean, if this is gonna be what Apple's coming out with, uh, I think they're gonna be way ahead of the pack. And improving hardware and getting a little bit more creative with the designs, it's gonna take Apple back to their kind of early 2000s renaissance. So I, I really am happy. I hope Apple keeps doing this and we're gonna have to see what's next. Now, where are wearable technologies leading? Well, you know, we, we always talk about, and I, I really am a believer of this, the whole cloud computer thing is starting to make, you know, it's making its way into everything. It's even making its way into wearable devices. And a great example of that is the Apple Watch. Now, I don't know about you, but if you asked me about, you know, would I wear uh, technology on me all the times about 10 years ago, I would have probably said no. 
but uh, you look at how far we've come. Now, look at this point. We're even seeing technology in clothing. Like, just la last time on Future Forecast, we talked about how Levi was working with Google to make a cyber jacket, and they did make it. Now, you'd think that would be it, right? Well, a jacket, maybe some jeans, you know, maybe a hat or something like that. That's all kind of reasonable. Well, you're in for a shock because clearly uh, this whole technology being on you, uh, it's going to be a normal thing going into 2020. And it's even going to be normal for people to get implanted technology. Think this is science fiction? Well, earlier this year, uh, a woman planted her Tesla Model 3 key into her arm. Now, of course, if you if you know what the Tesla Model 3 key looks like, it's kind of like a little credit card thing. And she's a software engineer. Her name's Amy DD. Uh, she took the car-shaped fob that Tesla gives you to open your car, and she implanted it kind of just at the wrist in her arm, which is, you know, it allows her to just go up to her car and just open it using her body rather than just the key. She documented the whole process in a video and she put it up online. And essentially, so the, like I said, it's a little credit card. It's like a valet card uh, for the Model 3. And she took the chip out of that actual physical card. And that allows you to tap and unlock the card. Then with the help of a body modification studio and a guy called Pineapple, uh, she was able to implant the card into her forearm. Now, to make it safe, you know, you have to have this uh, card encased in biopolymer. And she told the press that it, the hack works. However, her arm is still very swollen where the implant was placed, which kind of makes it hard uh, to kind of see, was it worth it? I mean, just open your car. So Amy says she's ordering two more keys and has plans to have a Tesla service technician come out to her home and show her how to pair the keys to her vehicle. So Amy's hack isn't the only Tesla hack uh, that we've seen. Uh, the security researcher Truman Kane debuted his surveillance detection scout at DEF CON this year. So Kane's hack essentially transforms the Model 3 into a surveillance bot that can track, spot, and store license plates as well as faces that it encounters. To make it work, uh, essentially he hacked the dashboard of a Tesla Model S using a USB port on the dashboard and made it so that the vehicle's built-in cameras were used as a surveillance system rather than just to detect people, you know, coming near the car or whatever. So it's meant to be another set of eyes to help you out and tell you, you know, if you, the license plate you've seen following you a couple of days. Uh, you know, you want to make sure that you're going along the route safely and you're not being followed. And of course, you know, there's definitely a risk uh, that a car can follow you uh, every day. Might just be a neighbor or, you know, it might be something else. But you know, Tesla already has the sentry mode, which came in an over the air update. And that kind of leads me to the next thing. Imagine if, like this, uh, this dashboard uh, system that's kind of watching everything and, you know, you can record license plates. What if, just like that, Tesla comes out with an update and say for the, the woman that had her thing implanted in her arm, uh, Tesla says, we now, you know, you, you don't need to use the card. Uh, it doesn't work with the car anymore. What happens to your implant? You know, it's different if you're wearing a device, and that's why I'm all for, you know, wearable technology, if it's on your jacket or anything like that, that's fine. But if it's implanted, that's much harder to get rid of. You can't just swap it out. Once you have something implanted, that's it. 
And talking a little bit more about, you know, wearable devices, here's something again from Apple. So this is really funny. Uh, so as I was just researching into wearable technologies, it appears that Apple is planning to launch its first augmented reality product sometime in 2022. So according to a report, uh, citing sources from, you know, internal Apple presentations, Cupertino is wanting to release an augmented reality headset in 2022 and a pair of AR glasses by 2023. These Apple glasses uh, popped up in previous rumors uh, with an earlier launch date of 2020. But this seems like it's going to be a few more years off. And, you know, we want to make sure it's concrete. Uh, Apple, as you know, they always set the trend. They want to make sure theirs makes the standard for the whole industry. So product details are kind of thin at the moment, but a few design points uh, pop up in some of the reports and it shows that it could be used with gaming. It could be used with video, virtual meetings. Apple glasses would also have the AR capabilities, uh, which is going to be on this new 3D sensor system developed in-house uh, and it's been apparently worked on for several years. So apparently this is gonna be having a more advanced form of face ID. So imagine that you, you're gonna put your glasses on, it scans your face. There you go, you've unlocked it and you put it in your head. So they're allegedly working on lenses that will also darken when the wearer's using AR, which that makes sense. And this, this is to let people know that you're not necessarily paying attention uh, when you're wearing them. Yeah, you know, when people are on their phones, they go across a, like a walk, a walkway in the city and you're driving and they don't look at you. Well, now you're going to have to look maybe for people with tinted glasses. So I don't know, that might get a little bit confusing. But Apple has about a thousand people working on this. So the augmented reality and the virtual reality initiative. And CEO Tim Cook, or as Donald Trump likes to call him, Tim Apple, said, you know, it's been a hot idea for AR for a number of years. And, you know, it's beginning to attract developers uh, to the platform, especially when we go into 2021. So clearly this is going to be a major business commitment and it's not just a small, you know, a research project or whatever. And perhaps the most interesting part of the report states uh, that Apple believes augmented reality glasses, specifically, will eventually replace smartphones. And this will occur roughly in a decade, according to executives. And by 2030, Apple expects the iPhone and Android phones as well to become obsolete, or at least in high-end Western markets. So Silicon Valley. Uh, and that's no easy task. You know, current AR glasses, uh, they have to pair up to a smartphone. And that provides all the data connectivity, the storage, the bulk processing capabilities uh, by the AR apps. So moving this into entirely just the sleek, lightweight glasses is going to require many engineers and you know Apple's first generation of AR products they're probably not going to offer that much uh, on their standalone capabilities you'll still need a phone in your pocket but barring some of the technological hurdles uh, there's little reason to believe that AR glasses can't replace most of our smartphones I mean messaging and calls you would think messaging uh, how are you going to type on glasses well think about what you've got in your car Apple CarPlay you just say the message and it takes in your voice and it puts it in text. That's how you deal with messages and calls. Well, maybe you just tap the glasses and you accept the call. And that might be an understatement. Maybe it's not that quite simple. But uh, navigating, you know, imagine if you've got this AR and it's got uh, real world map directions over hurdles and all sorts of things. It's really got some great potential. 
and voice recognition for 3D object detection, you might look over, this is getting very sci-fi, but imagine if you looked over at Whole Foods or something and it recognized the logo on the store in augmented reality and then it gives you a list of maybe coupons. So there you go, this is gonna be the next coupon product. You're gonna look around, you're gonna be like, where's the best deal? Is it over there or is it across the street? So this is gonna be kind of cool. And it's easy to imagine the possibilities of AR. Uh, I mean, you know, we had Pokemon Go. That was back in 2016 and everybody liked it. You know, it had a lot of people going outside and that's the main thing. AR is a little different. You know, everybody got quite antisocial with phones. They kind of sit at home and you don't really do anything. Augmented reality, you are in reality. You have to walk around and stuff. So a bit like Pokemon Go got people outside, this is gonna do exactly that. And there's even augmented reality for Snapchat. Now Snapchat, believe it or not, has its own glasses. Now they're sort of a, a very light version of augmented reality, but basically you put the glasses on, they look pretty good by the way. You put them on and you record maybe like a 10 second video, import it into Snapchat, and because the glasses are able to take in certain amounts of data for distance and whatever, all those little points get put into the software and you can create an augmented environment in what you just recorded in real life. So that kind of a stuff already exists. And I mean, imagine real-time text translation. Imagine you're in a different country, let's say Japan or something, and you're at the train station. You don't read Japanese. Uh, I don't read Japanese, I don't speak. You look and you see a sign and you have no idea what it means, but you've got your glasses, no problem. Translates it and off you are, you know where you're going. So this has got many uses and if you, there's even some apps on smartphones uh, where you can kind of like do that translation uh, from different languages and it kind of shows it. So when you look through the camera, it translates the text, it kind of matches the font, it's very cool, but on, a gla on glasses, that would be so much better. So there's no getting around the fact that augmented reality glasses, they're fundamentally, they're gonna change the way that we interact with the world and each other. But in any other way, you know, technology interacts with us. So a dedicated AR device like glasses will consume even more data about our surroundings, taking in audio and visual cues about our life. And, you know, it gets to the point where, you know, how how is it gonna work with privacy concerns? You know, we're, if you've got glasses on, you're pretty much going, you might go into somewhere that's a classified area. Imagine if somebody's wearing these glasses and they walk into some government place. So we really need to take this into consideration uh, and especially where smartphones can go. I mean, putting them into glasses, it seems like the most logical thing to do. Uh, like I mentioned before, uh, the next big step after that will be probably contact lenses. Um, and I know that's still quite a ways off. We're talking about 2022 and 2030, but contact lenses is definitely on the line of progression for this technology. And you know, it's not, it's a non-invasive wearable technology. So unlike that Tesla key that was implanted, this is something that, you know, it's glasses, you take them off, contact lenses, you take them off. So Apple most likely will set the industry standard and especially if they go ahead with this. This will be the next iPod for Apple, will be the next iPhone. Mark my words, this is gonna be a big thing. Enjoying the show? Well, just remember you can listen to them on SoundCloud anytime you want. Just search for Future Forecast with Daniel Trainer and have a listen. It's that easy. 
This show's broadcast weekly on X-Ray 91.1 FM and every day of the working week on KUIK 1360 AM. So be sure to tune in and join live. So let's talk a little bit about transportation. And, you know, this is all the big hoopla right now in the media. The new Ford Mustang Mach-E, and it's been revealed. And I I talked about this actually just in the last Future Forecast, uh, and here it is, it's been released. So a new horse is joining the stable. Ford's all-electric, Mustang-inspired SUV is finally here. Uh, revealed on Sunday ahead of the 2019 LA Auto Show, uh, the Mustang Mach-E is here. And, you know, it's great, but there's only one thing wrong with it, the price. Uh, but before we get into that, let's talk about the car itself, because we need to give it a chance here. Uh, it's built on a brand new battery electric vehicle uh, architecture, and it was part of Ford's $11.5 billion investment to make all of their vehicles electrified. So thanks to having a very low center of gravity like all electric cars and a near 50-50 weight distribution, the Mach-E should have the best handling for any SUV in the world. As for dimensions, its wheelbase measures just over 117 inches, uh, which is about 2 inches shorter than the Ford Explorer. The Mach-E's overall length is about 186 inches, so meaning it's about 4 foot shorter than its 3 row sibling. Uh, so, giving customers some welcome choice of range of, you know, they've got lots of different trims. They've got a premium trim, they've got first edition trim, they've got a California Route 1 trim, which is kind of cool, and they've got the GT and GT Performance Edition. So, the two different batteries, this is this is the technical, this is what you probably are more, most interested in about. Both are lithium-ion, uh, the standard range clocks in at 75 kilowatt hours. So, let me just put that into perspective. The Model 3 uh, Tesla has about a 55-ish kilowatt-hour battery, and that's the base model. Uh, Ford's got a 75 kilowatt-hour battery, and it's getting less range. I'm just going to put that out there. But anyway, let's continue. So the extended range battery has 98.8 kilowatt-hours. It's nearly 100 kilowatt-hours. Uh, but both the batteries, they'll have an 8-year or 100,000 miles warranty, which is, you know, the same as Tesla's Model 3 base. And naturally, the Mach-E is, you know, its driving range will vary, you know, just like any electric car. If you drive it too hard, you're not going to go as far as you would if you were driving it normally. That's, that's the same as with the gas car. But Ford says that the model equipped with the extended range battery should provide the EPA range of at least 300 miles. Uh, Just to note, though, the base model only gets 230 miles, uh, which is kind of, you would think, okay, that's not too bad. But remember, there's no, like, Tesla supercharging network. There's a similar network, but it's not the same. But anyway, the Mach-E should start between $40,000 and $50,000. Now, that's a lot. However, that doesn't include the $7,500 federal tax credit, and that is a credit that now I don't believe you get with the Tesla, uh, because after each manufacturer sells a certain amount of electric cars, that federal tax credit for that particular brand goes down. 
So that's some that's a big benefit to getting one of these. And Ford said that he expects that that discount will remain in full effect for about one year after the Mach-E goes on sale, and then gradually it'll step down all the way down to zero. So again, I don't want to just give positive information because all of the tech websites, mostly, uh, they were saying, oh, this is the best thing ever, oh my god. But it, let's talk about reality here. And again, I'm not going to be shilling Tesla or anything, but the 0 to 60 is, a, uh, is slower than a base Model 3, which again is a lot cheaper than the Mach-E base models. So we're just putting that out there. The Mustang Mach-E, though, can be fitted with the range extension, uh, which gives you 332 horsepower, which is really good, and 417 pound-feet of torque. Uh, and then you've got the GT, uh, which is kind of... You think GT, isn't that the gas, like the, the V8? It's a little bit confusing why they called it that. But anyway, it's a Grand Tour. So they've got the GT and GT Performance Editions. So it's... You know what, I'm actually, I've lost all interest in talking about this thing. Uh, I, honestly, it looks nothing like a Mustang. Uh, it shouldn't be in any way related to one. And if you want a Mustang, go and get a V8. You don't buy a Mustang for an electric. Uh, you, if you want an electric, get the best electric there is. Get a Tesla if you want one of those. Uh, and another thing we should note here, uh, a couple of years back, Tesla tried to get the name Model E for their uh, now named Model 3. Uh, to name their lineup, you know, Model S, E, and X. It was a little bit fun. Uh, and then Ford's legal team came in and decided, you know what, we're going to ruin it. And as Elon put it, they literally killed sex. So if you want some advice, I would say wait for the Model Y if you want an SUV. Although it doesn't look as nice as the Mach-E on the outside, the interior is so much better uh, than the Mach-E. If you look at the Mach-E interior, it's hard to see how they could have made an interior that looks more plain than a Model 3, <laughs> but they managed to do that. And also, the Model Y is going to have options for seven seats. You get the bragging rights as well. Imagine you go up to your friends and you say, hey, I got the new Ford. Okay, cool. You go up to your friends and you say, hey, I got the new Tesla. Then they know you mean business. Uh, now, you know, we're heading towards as well an autonomous future. And currently, the only cars that can properly drive themselves are Teslas. And soon you'll be able to let your car go out and make you money while you sit at home, which is the best. Uh, and all of these other car manufacturers, you know, you've got Jaguar, you've got BMW, and you've got all these electric, they're falling far back. If you buy one of those and they don't have full autonomous driving, you be prepared to lose a lot on depreciation. Uh, so do the right thing and buy a Tesla. Now let's have a little talk about, you know, going from diesel to electric. And this is kind of an interesting story. So back in 2013, uh, you know UPS, the US Postal Service, uh, they had 10 EVs maxed out at one of their facilities and it maxed out their whole charging capacity. And UPS responded uh, to it first by saying, you know, it's a network pinch point. Uh, the conventional way of, you know, buying and upgrading the local provider, it's starting to make a little bit more sense now. Uh, however, that approach, it was very expensive, it was inflexible, and it also required them to fund assets that were never going to belong to them. Uh, and that was from Peter Harris, who's the Director of International Sustainability at UPS. So when UPS needed uh, to update its charging infrastructure to accommodate 65 electric vehicles, the company formed a partnership, and this is over in the UK, with the UK Power Network Service and Cross River Partnership. And that would assist in navigating a combination of operations, economic uh, policies, all of that. 
and that was all to develop a smarter approach with lower costs, greater flexibility, and greater future potential. And this is amazing. UPS delivered 5.2 billion packages in 2018 and currently moves about 20.6 million packages each day. So to achieve that level of service, uh, the company operates hundreds and hundreds of thousands of vehicles and manages about 2,300 daily flights. So this is a big operation. And it comes into this question, you know, we're moving towards an increasingly uh, low emission zoned with cities banning, you know, diesels uh, even. And, you know, UPS is aiming for 2025 to have converted 25% of its fleet to electric. Which, you know, with that ambition, that comes with several challenges, but also a lot of opportunities. So three major vehicle rated difficulties would be no surprise. You know, you've got a lack of products, high costs, and concerns of overdriving ranges. So the infrastructure issues are equally vexing, uh, and especially if you've got a local community's electric grid that can't support the influx of electric vehicles. So, you know, this electrification initiative, especially when it comes to this scale, might have trouble shifting out of neutral. But before we continue, I think it's important to talk about this uh, topic about the electric grid uh, because I'm, I've done a little bit of research into this uh, and it's definitely, there's a split in opinions here. Now, nobody can get argue at all uh, that if everybody started using, you know, supercharging uh, electric vehicles and they all did it at once, they would have no effect on the grid. Uh, that's totally ridiculous. However, there's a very easy way to alleviate this and that would be to have batteries that are able to discharge power really quickly as kind of like a refill station. Now, also these battery walls, they aren't always expensive and most of them are kind of put together with old EV car batteries. A great example is BMW and they've got their, you know, the little i3, kind of looks very futuristic and they literally take the batteries out of that and now you've got an energy storage unit. So hopefully within the next five years, EVs will match or beat diesel vehicles uh, based in terms of cost and within the next few decades the infrastructure challenges are going to be totally covered. So the 2020s it'll be a no-brainer to have an EV and diesels will start to make no sense at all uh, especially in Europe where they're really popular. You know North America you've got a couple of diesels here and there but Europe they're very very popular. So at that point, uh, it wouldn't be sustainable for people to use diesel uh, to deliver. And companies that use larger diesel vehicles, they're going to have to go and change over. So it's better to do it earlier than later. So the electrification of transport fleets is coming. And I mean, you had Amazon not that long ago state that they're investing $700 million into Rivian for 100,000 delivery vehicles that are all electric. So definitely watch this space. So if we're talking about, you know, transportation, we should talk a little bit about a company called Boring, the Boring Company. Uh, so first off, what is this? Well, it's one of Elon Musk's companies and they do exactly what the name implies. They bore tunnels, uh, which is a bit boring. Uh, but what isn't boring is what the tunnels have inside them, which will eventually be super fast underground expressways. Now, currently they have a test tunnel and it's located just under their base in Hawthorne, California. And it's been used for research and development uh, to show how the public transportation system could work. And funnily enough, uh, the alignment uh, leaves the SpaceX property, uh, their parking lot, and it goes underneath and terminates about 1.1 miles away on the corner of Prairie Avenue and 120th Street. But why tunnels? Uh, well, it's all to alleviate traffic, 
transportation corridors, and it's a bit like buildings, you know, we build skyscrapers, we're now going to have to think in the three dimension for highways. And the one option is to go up with flying cars, but flying cars, they have issues, uh, especially with weather, you know, if it starts raining or snowing or something, and noise. Uh, generally, they also have an increased anxiety level, you know, for people below, you don't want to have something drop on top of you. But the other option is to go down, build tunnels, and the benefits are there's no practical limit to how many layers of tunnels can be built, so any level of traffic can be addressed. Uh, tunnels are also weatherproof. Uh, the tunnel construction and operations totally silent and invisible to anybody on the surface. And tunnels, they don't divide communities with lanes. Uh, I remember watching a documentary about Manhattan and they had this big highway go through and it split up the community. Well, you wouldn't have that problem, especially if you used tunnels. But currently, tunnels, they're really, really expensive to dig, uh, with some projects costing as much as a billion dollars per mile. Uh, so in order to make a tunnel network feasible, the tunnel costs must be reduced by a factor of more than 10. Uh, so tunnels, when they're designed properly, are some of the most safest places to be, especially during an earthquake. And along the west coast, that's definitely a concern. So from a structural safety standpoint, uh, the tunnels move uniformly with the ground, in contrast to surface structures like buildings and freeways up on the top. Additionally, uh, a large amount of earthquake damage is caused by falling debris, uh, which doesn't apply when you're inside a tunnel. Uh, I mean, there's some examples like the 1994 Northridge earthquake, uh, which had no damage to LA subway tunnels. Uh, then you've got 1989, you had the Loma Prerta, which was northern California. There was no damage to the tunnels, which funnily enough was then used to transport rescue personnel. And then you've got 1985, there was a Mexico City earthquake. No damage to tunnels. And again, they were used for transport of rescue personnel. But what's new with this? Well, the boring company in the city of Las Vegas are preparing to announce the collaboration in a ceremony that will officially mark the beginning of the construction of the city's newest, most innovative transportation method. So the Las Vegas Convention and Visitors Authority, which for short is LVCVA, uh, announced on November 12th that the site would initially begin drilling later this month. So traveling between points of interest in Las Vegas, it'll become much more convenient and that will all be thanks to a $52.5 million boring company tunnel. So it's expected to connect the convention center to popular tourist destinations such as the downtown Las Vegas and you know the boulevard resort corridor better known as the Strip. Uh, and the international airport. So this is gonna be a real people mover and it's gonna be two one mile long tunnels and it's gonna give you about 4,400 people per hour capacity. So it's very cool and don't be surprised if you start seeing boring company pop up in your city. Enjoying the show? Well, just remember you can listen to them on SoundCloud anytime you want. Just search for Future Forecast with Daniel Trainer and have a listen. It's that easy. This show's broadcast weekly on X-Ray 91.1 FM and every day of the working week on KUIK 1360 AM. So be sure to tune in and join live. Energy. 
We've talked about energy before, but it is a really important thing, especially as we become a more technologically advanced society. We need more energy. Now, how are we going to do that? Well, one way is with offshore wind, and it's going to be a $1 trillion industry projected by 2040. So last month, uh, the American wind industry hit a major milestone, 100 gigawatt hours totally installed. Uh, and that's roughly enough energy to power the entire state of California and New Jersey combined for one year. But offshore wind represents a large portion of new gigawatts in the pipeline. And we should do everything we can to keep it growing uh, for the good of the economy, but also for the health of the oceans. Uh, there's a big revolution happening along all of the coasts and the number of offshore wind projects are really they're ballooning over the next year. And why is that? Well, the costs have been plummeting. So offshore global uh, wind prices have dropped about 32% in the past year and 12% in the past six months. So this is pretty major. And a new outlook from the International Energy Agency predicts offshore wind generation will grow 15-fold in the next 20 years. Uh, emerging as a $1 trillion global industry. So while offshore wind is just starting here in North America, over in Europe and Asia, it's proved how profitable it can be to harness the ocean winds. Uh, I mean, progress here in the US alone uh, shows that we're well on our way to realizing some big profits. So, but state commitments for offshore wind have now reached over 22 gigawatt hours for 2035. So that equals to the entire installed capacity of the world at the end of 2018. And all over the world, there's no denying this, uh, carbon pollution definitely makes the oceans more acidic and less oxygen rich. So that means trouble for coastal fisheries and you know the millions of people that rely on healthy fish populations for food. And meanwhile, you know, you always hear about climate change, but the most important thing really is environmental damage. And it's costing a lot of these coastal communities quite a lot. This is where the offshore wind really comes into being, you know, an economic benefit, but also, you know, it helps the environment as well. So the IPCC report explicitly says that ocean-based renewable energy sources, including offshore wind, can help address climate change, or if you want to think of it a different way, environmental damage, and generate economic opportunities. So this whole wind revolution means the redevelopment of coastal communities and reinvestment of neglected ports. Some communities have already experienced uh, the big benefits like New Bedford, which is a city with the highest unemployment rates in Massachusetts, and they've had a big increase uh, in local jobs and it's helped strategically prepare uh, to be a hub of operation for the industry. Uh, and then you've got Block Island, uh, which is the site of the first offshore wind farm, and that's seen a big positive impact on tourism following all the construction. So a thriving offshore wind industry goes hand in hand with a thriving community on the shore and acknowledging that others use the ocean. So the offshore wind is proactively addressing all the concerns with community groups. And you know, if any issues come up, they always try and fix it quickly. So either way, the ocean will always be one of humanity's greatest resources and most dangerous threats. So with offshore wind, we can turn on the power of the ocean from an existential crisis to our coasts into an economic engine for health, clean energy and well-being. And you know the best thing is already taking place all around the country and around the world. And talking about all around the world, let's talk about Australia because they've just got 50% of electricity demands met with renewable power grids. 
So Australia's main electricity grid was briefly powered by 50% renewable energy this week in a new milestone that experts say will increasingly become normal. Uh, rooftop solar was providing about 23.7% of all the power demand, uh, followed by wind at 15% and you know large solar with 8.8% and hydro at 1.9%. Uh, at the same time, Coal was still the largest provider of electricity on the grid, with power stations fed with black coal generating about 35.7% and brown coal plants providing about 13.5%. So although the 50% mark sounds great, but it was only for 10 minutes. Uh, the Over the whole day, it was 31.2% of electricity, and that was used across all the five states in Australia. And continuous rollout of rooftop solar electricity is a key driver. Uh, I remember when I was in Australia, you go to almost every house has a solar panel on it. It's absolutely crazy. So the milestone reflects a rapid acceleration on renewable energy deployment across Australia in recent years. And that has set a record-breaking level of investment. Now, in 2018, a report from the Clean Energy Regulator has showed that 2 million small glass solar systems were installed. Uh, like I said, everybody's getting solar over there. Next to 3.5 gigawatts of renewable energy projects accredited against Australia's 2020 renewable energy target. The report said that Australia is now ahead of schedule in meeting the large-scale target of 33,000 gigawatt hours of renewable energy generation by 2020. Other analysts say that the clean energy could make up about 35% of Australia's electricity needs within two years. And Kane Thornton, who's the chief executive of renewable energy industry, Clean Energy Council, said it is a fantastic achievement to have more than half of the national energy's market powered by renewable energy, and it's worth celebrating. A decade from now, it'll be completely normal as renewable energy and storage projects are built to replace retiring coal-fired power stations. So at the beginning of the decade, South Australia's power system ran on about 50% wind and solar for the first time, but today it happens all the time. So renewable storage, uh, all of it, it all works together to do everything the old coal power plants can do. Uh, just much cheaper, which is the most important thing, it's cheaper, uh, cleaner, and most importantly, very reliably. But you know, we talk a lot about renewable energies, we should talk a little bit more about solar versus wind power. You know, what is actually the future? Because you hear the two and you might think, hey, I'd like that in my house, but what one's the best? Well, you know, we're still betting on the green energy's top two producers to break out our dependence of fossil fuels. But can they really stand up to the non-renewable energy? Well, let's have a little look at the pros and cons of wind and solar energy. So wind is technically a form of solar energy. I mean, people might think, well, what? How? Well, the sun's radiation heats the Earth's uneven surfaces, and, you know, hot air rises, cool air settles, and this difference creates wind, which is kinetic energy, motion-based energy. Then the wind turbines capture that kinetic energy when the wind blows over the turbine's blades, and it generates electricity, energy, uh, from the rotating of the blade into the mechanical power. Now, solar energy is the sun's radiation that reaches the Earth. So when sunlight hits photovoltaic or PV cells inside a solar panel, the cells transform the sun's radiation into electricity. So wind is more efficient uh, than solar. That's, there's no question about that. It's getting close though. Uh, but compared to solar panels, wind turbines do release less CO2 
and they produce more energy overall. So in fact, one wind turbine can generate the same amount of electricity per kilowatt as about 48,704 solar panels. So there's, there's quite a big difference. Uh, but the enormous power generating capacity of wind turbines doesn't make wind energy, you know, the clear winner. Wind turbines are sometimes considered an eyesore. Uh, they take up a lot of space and they can hurt wildlife. Uh, and they aren't suitable for densely populated areas, so that means they're most likely going to be in rural regions, uh, far from cities that kind of, which is where the power is most needed. So for suburban and urban regions, solar panels are more practical. Uh, solar panels can also be installed on rooftops, schools, businesses, and they can be bought or leased at an affordable rate. Plus, transparent solar panels are now being developed, and they're being retrofit into roofs and windows, and even your smartphone and your laptop. They even have it in cars, which is really cool. But despite all the advantages of green energy, there's still that big question. Is it an economically stable option? Well, both wind and solar have grown rapidly in the last decade, uh, but they only account still for a small percentage of the world's energy generation capacity. Uh, for wind and solar to compete with oil, coal, and natural gas, you know, it's going to be taking a little bit longer, but going into the 2020s, it shouldn't take that long. Plus, the cost of producing and installing and maintaining solar panels and wind turbines are continuing to fall, and it's starting to convince consumers, you know, maybe you should make the switch over to this renewable energy. So you might already see these wind turbines popping up and solar panels, and you'll see very soon people swapping out their roof tiles for possibly the Tesla solar roof tiles. So all of this is coming around the corner. 2020 is going to be full of green energy. Enjoying the show? Well, just remember you can listen to them on SoundCloud anytime you want. Just search for Future Forecast with Daniel Trainer and have a listen. It's that easy. This show's broadcast weekly on X-Ray 91.1 FM and every day of the working week on KUIK 1360 AM. So be sure to tune in and join live. Let's talk a little bit about the future. The future of architecture. Well, over the last two decades, you know, the construction industry has gone through many dramatic changes. You know, we've had the way of the future has been kind of taking traditional concepts, but they're no longer valid. Uh, now we're starting to use compost and it's being used as building materials. You've got crowdfunding and collaborative designs that have become increasingly popular uh, for architectural projects. So there's definitely a focus on the green infrastructure and green energy efficiency of all of these projects. So architecture as we know it right now might likely disappear in the future. Uh, the role of architects may be very different from now and how we recognize it. Uh, specialists in, for example, environmental science and social anthropology will probably become active team members in design studios, working on complex projects that require knowledge in different fields. So it's reasonable to expect that the emergence from specialists in various fields will eliminate many job profiles currently existing in the construction industry. 
I mean, imagine we're going into this artificial world that you can observe and walk through, you know, with augmented reality, uh, reach out and touch objects and they respond to you in real time. So this immersive virtual reality, you know, this could kind of change how spaces are constructed. You know, use a combination of computer graphics with wireless tracking technology. You've got your headsets, your HD projectors, even uh, polarized glasses and all of that. And it all works together and you could create an interactive real life experience. With the growth of our population and the advent of such ideas as big data and the Internet of Things, the natural step for cities is kind of becoming more interconnected. Uh, there's millions of sensors in place already monitoring various things in metropolises. Uh, and in the near future, these sensors will be multiplying uh, until they can monitor everything from streetlights and, you know, a trash can on the road uh, to conditions and energy consumption. So the way we make things has changed quite drastically, but it's still got quite a bit to go. So as we know, robotics are coming into the construction industry and it won't be long until we're getting assisted uh, with these construction processes using assembly robots. Uh, assisted robots in which the human and the robot work together. It's not the human controlling the robot. Uh, they're very close on the horizon. So we've seen 3D printing of consumer items, uh, but with new algorithms, you can actually create a structure with a 3D printer. 3D printed construction is definitely going to change how we kind of deal with construction limits. Uh, land is becoming very scarce in the world. You know, the population grows and the environmental changes shrink uh, the amount of livable spaces on Earth. I mean, take best example ever, San Francisco. Look at the real estate there. So we need some creative thinkers. We need a solution to be built up. But with land increasingly becoming more scarce, it's very expensive. How would the already busy cities cope with accommodating more people? To be a sustainable city, uh, you need to be a bit more savvy. You need to take into consideration a lot of things. Because making room for not only more commercial and residential spaces, but infrastructure will help be able to cope with an increasing population. So things like roads, schools, hospitals, all of them. It's kind of scary because humanity currently faces an urgent and difficult challenge, especially when it comes to the perpetual decline of our arable land and natural resources, you know, climate change, rapid population growth, and environmental destruction. Right now, we've got the best opportunity to create a better world using these 3D printing and new architecture methods. And that brings up the idea, vertical cities. I mean, they're becoming more and more popular. Uh, vertical farming is already a thing, and controlled farming has become very popular with many horticulturalists and entrepreneurs as a solution to the negative effects of traditional farming. So whilst supporting an increase in demand uh, as the population gets bigger and bigger, an availability of farmland gets smaller and smaller. However, all of the above has already kind of been developed in these vertical cities, and they seem like they're going to be popping up very soon. It won't be long until you see these massive towers. It's going to be like Blade Runner. Think of that. It's awesome. Do you know what would also be cool? You know we're talking about Blade Runner, these mega skyscrapers. Well, what about robo-furniture? And I know, okay, that was a little bit anticlimactic. Oh wow, look, robo-chair, cool. Well, two-thirds of our global population, so 9.4 billion people, are going to be expected to live in urban areas by 2050. So we can expect that there's going to be a big change in domestic living arrangements, especially the ones that we know and love today. In high-density cities, the static apartment layouts, which have one function per room, will most likely become a luxury that most people can't get. 
you know, you think, is this is kind of normal right now? This is going to be a luxury in the future. But you think of having a living room, having a bedroom, having a bathroom or a kitchen. That's no longer going to be economically or environmentally sustainable. Building stock will need to work much harder. The need to use building spaces more efficiently means adaptive and responsive domestic microenvironments. And th that'll totally replace the old concept of static rooms with private apartments. The changes, the changes will reframe our idea of what home means, uh, what we do in it, and how a home can support and help the inhabitants with domestic living. So Sidewalk Labs and my favorite store, IKEA, uh, are collaborating with Ori, which is a robotic furniture startup which emerged from Massachusetts Institute of Technology. And that was to transform our use of the increasingly sparse urban living space. They've developed many ways to enhance existing apartments with pre-manufactured standardized products to make living spaces more flexible, Leading product designers have also produced tantalizing concepts of how these new products could enhance our lives in the cities where space is at a premium. Uh, one example is a floor plan measuring about three meters by three and a half meters. It's very small. So this more intensive use of building space with hyper-dense living is, is gonna have an impact on the circulation of spaces. It'll also require more services. As tire spaces become a thing, you've got more people. And that means public spaces will become much more crowded and play a more important role in our well-being. But let's get back to the robotic furniture. You know, it's available now, and it could also help people just with some form of impairment. So as you know, robotic furniture already kind of exists. Uh, you've got furniture that helps people, you know, they've got a little bit of impairment. They maybe can't get out of their chair, you know, you've got the elderly chair lifts up, right? Uh, but this can be expanded to a, a much broader range of people uh, with other types of physical uh, impairments or just for even practicality. So for example, like mobile furniture. Now that's not a new idea. In the late 1980s and the early 1990s, there was a whole range of mobile furniture such as tables on wheels, sideboards with casters and you know, it looks like we've always tried to make rooms adaptable. You know, the Japanese, which is a fantastic example, they've got those room dividers, and now you see them pretty much everywhere. They're almost like a little bit of a fashion statement. Uh, but saving and transforming furniture, uh, like with IKEA, how they fold up uh, hallway tables and even how they're packed. But you know, talking about all of this, you talk about IKEA all day you want, the whole term robotic furniture, it just makes you think of the Jetsons. But is it going to become a reality? Well, I really hope so. But uh, rooms, they'll transform from a bedroom into a living room, which is very similar to the Jetsons, or from a study into an entertainment space. At the top of the couch, you just do a little gesture or maybe a voice command and boom, there you go, you've transformed your room. And if you go to YouTube, which I highly recommend you do, you can kind of see these videos where they have like a bed, they fold it up to the wall and now it becomes a, a nice living room. But then there's a lot of other questions that we need to answer. You know, for example, this whole transformation of your space, is it gonna kind of negatively impact your personal routines? Like, you know, the time you get up in the morning, you have your coffee or whatever, and then you have to change everything, make it look like a living room. But then that's where this robotically optimized homes might come into being a thing. It's a bit like how you've got your iPhone, you can control the lights in your house. Well, you might say, Okay, I'm coming home. Uh, hey Siri, can you make my uh, living room? 
It could be just like that. Or, uh, hey Siri, could you make a um, dining room now? Or something like that. So in summary, existing building typologies and the ways and means of how buildings are designed and developed will change entirely. But this really has the potential to be a massive and disruptive impact on the real estate development. How's this going to affect building design, regulation, construction methods, and most importantly, housing prices? Now here's something that you've probably heard before, but drone deliveries, they're coming soon. As part of the pilot project announced Thursday by Wing. And that whole unit uh, spun out of a moonshot lab, which is by Google's parent company, Alphabet. So this drone service launched back in October uh, in Christiansburg, Virginia, is the most advanced real-world test of technology to quickly fly items ranging from gummy bears to painkillers to customers. And Wing Chief Executive James Burgess said on Thursday, by delivering small packages directly to homes through the air in minutes, we will demonstrate what we expect safer, faster, cleaner local delivery to look like in the future. And just when you think, eh, that's kind of cool, believe it or not, FedEx, the big delivery giant FedEx is joining in, as well as Walgreens and a little ice cream company called Sugar Magnolia. So the Wing Project, that's one of several in the works with major tech firms uh, such as Amazon, Uber, and then you've got some other startups like Flirty, which is seeking to speedily deliver consumer goods and medical supplies. Earlier this year, Wing became the first drone operation to be certified as a US carrier by the US Federal Aviation Administration, clearing the regulatory path for it to make deliveries to buyers. But customers will need to live in designated delivery areas and they have to sign up for the service. But what are these drones? What do they look like? What do they actually, how much can they deliver? Well, the wing drones weigh about 4.5 kilos, so about 10 pounds, and they're going to be able to carry goods in specially designed containers. Then they hover over the area and they lower the packages by a winch to the designated drop zones outside the people's house. And the cargo, it can't be any more than, you know, 1.3 kilos or 3 pounds. So at the time of ordering something uh, to have it plopped outside of your house, it's going to have to be something fairly small. Uh, and the items that will be available for this immediate delivery will be from places like Walgreens, uh, including children's snacks, uh, over-the-counter drugs such as cold or pain medicines, uh, which is really cool. Imagine if you're sick and you're at home and you can't get to the shop. Well, this is where this kind of thing comes in. And it goes a step further. The Wing team completed its first real-world deliveries back in 2014 in rural Australia, where they successfully transported first aid supplies, candy bars, dog treats, water, uh, all of that to farmers. And then two years after that, wing drones are now being used to deliver burritos to students at the University of Virginia. So as you can see, the future is quite bright. We've got burritos now getting delivered to us in these awesome little drones. So wing drones carrying packages for Walgreens and FedEx will have a range of about six miles uh, when they take off and land from their controlled facilities. And they remain airborne for the whole delivery. Like we just talked about, the little winch pulls it down and it goes back up. It's always in the air. So the drones will hover about six meters or 20 foot above the ground in the designated area and an item pops down on the ground and there you go. And as a safety feature, uh, the lines automatically detach if they get caught on anything. But the coolest part is Wings not charging any fees for drone deliveries with customers' transactions handled directly with the merchants. 
And I can tell you, for people that have a very tight schedule, sometimes they can't get to the shop because they've got that much work, this is a type of thing that's going to become very popular. So the next time you look up into the sky and you see a drone, it might be carrying a burrito. Well, it looks like that's all we have time for today, but remember you can always listen back to these whenever you want. Just search for Future Forecasts with Daniel Trainer and SoundCloud. This show's broadcast through X-Ray 91.1 FM and KUIK 1360 AM. So be sure to tune in and listen live. Remember, all of what we just covered is happening right now. This isn't science fiction anymore, it's actually reality, especially going into the 2020s and beyond. 